try to, you know, welcome you guys with open arms and yak a little bit before diving right in, but today, if you don't mind, I'm just going to dispatch with the pleasantries and, and do exactly that. <laughs> Dive right into the deep end, alright? Because, I mean, if you didn't catch us last time, well, <laughs> you missed a humdinger of a show, because we began a look back at the dreaded Star Wars prequels. But you know, that was only the beginning of something bigger. Because that was the start of what I said it was going to be a, a few months of just review after review after review of all seven Star Wars flicks. So today, you guessed it, <laughs> today's next victim will be none other than Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones Through the Eyes of a Fanboy. Uh, let's see here. Well, like I said, if, if you didn't catch us last time, let me catch you up. So, uh, a young Obi-Wan Kenobi and Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn Rummy stumbled upon a, a little bit of a coup, if you will, on the planet of Naboo, you know, because a seedy trade federation was trying to do the, the dirty work of one Darth Sidious, but that didn't exactly work out that well, because, ah, uh, well, Qui-Gon and, and young Obi-Wan were able to save the princess, or the queen, or which which one is this for? No. Yeah, anyway, because Qui-Gon and young Obi-Wan were able to save the Queen just in time, along with uh, her squad of rent-a-cops. But then they commandeered a spaceship, and then went and, well, thing, things didn't go very well from there, because 
almost immediately, <laughs> they crash land on Tatooine, where they end up meeting a, a nice little family of two, you know, a, a mother and son who just happen to be uh, slaves to uh, some flying little stereotypical bullshit fucker uh, named Watto. But yeah, they, they, they meet up, they get acquainted, they become friends. Qui-Gon finds that the little boy has uh, extremely strong force tendencies and uh, basically tries to hoodwink Watto into betting the boy as basically a, a prize if said boy is able to win in a pod race. Which of course he does. And the moment he does, the little boy is forced with the, the decision to either become a Jedi or stay with his mother. But he can't do both. So, unlike most, <laughs> he, he kicks old mommy dearest to the curb and immediately says, I'll go. And of course, you know, they fly off, meet up with the Jedi Council. Jedi Council says, fuck you. They fight. They uncover uh, some sort of Sith Lord and, and Apprentice, which apparently is a thing now. And while trying to figure out who the Sith Lord is and just exactly what the fuck's going on, they kill the Apprentice, but not before Qui-Gon gets run through by the Apprentice, at which point the Jedi Council suddenly has a change of heart for no damn reason and says, okay, Obi-Wan, you're Jedi Master now, and... For whatever reason, you can go ahead and train the boy. So, I mean, you know, there's that. And, and of course, that all happens after a, a little bit of a, well, a little bit of a battle between uh, Jar Jar Binks. Fuck, I hate him. Anyway, and the, and the Gungans against uh, some, some army of, oh, a whole bunch of robotic troopers of some sort. Who like uh, their uh, kin? These these armored droids, if you will, can't hit diddly fucking squat. Okay, but anyway, uh, and during that battle, the little boy somehow uh, accidentally, like we buy that, gets in a ship, pilots that fucker all the way into outer space. Lands in the hangar bay of the ship that basically is supposed to have some sort of control over these droids. Blows up something on the ship, which then deactivates the droids. Making Jar Jar and his people think that they actually did something worth a fuck. And there you have it. Yeah, that, that's... You're caught up. You know... That's it. That's all that happened in the fucking movie. <sighs> that last episode was uh, over an hour long. And here we are less than 15 minutes in and I've already got you covered. Alright, that's, that's actually a little depressing. But anyway, because now that we're all caught up and <laughs> as the journey continues... Right along our uh, unbearable agony. Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. 
is a 2002 epic turned epic fail directed by George Lucas who originally came up with the the whole damned idea long ago in a galaxy far far away well okay maybe not that far it was California let's just fuck it anyway who gives a fuck and who not surprisingly also co-wrote the worthless prattle that we're about to take a look at as clones is the fifth film to be released in the star wars saga and the second in terms of internal chronological order and while the second part in a three-part act is usually the most emotionally involved and sometimes even even the darkest and most action-packed. <sighs> Unfortunately, <laughs> while that's usually the case, this, this thing didn't get the memo on that, making it all the more excruciating to have to sit through. Because oh, if, if you thought the last one was a snoozer, which, you know, it was, but this one... Oh, shit. It's it's right up there. Because even with a budget of $115 million and a runtime of 142 minutes, well, that, that alone makes it not only the most expensive, but the longest film in the whole damned series. Or at least... At least it did uh, at this point. As George begins what would come to be his final stride into the sunset. As he continued to try and, and milk the franchise for all it was at least once worth. Even with all that time and all that money invested in it. This... This damn thing is just horrible, you know? And now, now to, to its credit, after the discombobulating monstrosity that was the, the Phantom Menace, Lucas was reluctant to return to the writer's desk, uh, let alone to the director's chair, which, uh, who can blame him, but it also might perchance explain why he only finished a rough draft of this uh, whopping mountain of boiling, bubbling excrement only three months before principal photography was to even begin, as he knew that even, even as he must still continue to trudge on through a, a first, second, and even third draft, and as the clock counted down, all that lay before him was a lead balloon filled with the the air of certain disaster and pending doom. And he, I gotta at least give him some credit, because I gotta convince myself that there's a chance that he knew that. And, yeah, 
Some might say that that's even worse, because that means that he knew that it was doomed to fail. Or at least doomed to be a failure in, in, in the fans' eyes. And he went along with it anyway. So, yeah, there there is that. But, whatever, you know, because, like I said, it was filled with doom and despair. But, uh, why would he care? Because that doom and despair certainly wasn't his. <laughs> it was ours. Because, sure, the third draft would become the closest thing that he would create to the shooting script with a, a story focusing on, on the lead-up to some sort of clone war that was mentioned by Alec Guinness in A New Hope. <laughs> Probably somewhere around uh, the time of shooting where he began to realize, what have I done? And while that sounds just dandy, as was to be just our luck. Once they wrapped filming up in a, a nice, colorful, bright bow that would make Marvel just plots all over themselves, it would turn out to be all over but the sobbing. And there was plenty of that too. As we soon would come to the harsh realization that a third time was apparently not the charm in the case of, of this constant reminder that bigger is, eh, frankly, not always better. Which becomes pretty painfully obvious with almost every single shot having some sort of cheesy digital blue screen enhancement that would today be seen as pretty carelessly substandard, you know? But for some reason at the time, he thought that whole idea that, you know, of, of just riddling this fucker with that kind of stuff was just tits, you know? But actually, it's because of those so-called enhancements that it, it, it's hard to believe that even a, a fraction of filming went on in places like like Italy and Spain and yet the overuse of these blue screen antics is so haphazardly obvious and in our faces as it seems to bring to mind some of the Xbox games that I used to play as a kid that that's the kind of shit that uh, a lot of these effects bring to mind and even as they do so, even as awesome as Yoda was, as he rapidly bounces around near the end, tell me that doesn't remind you in the slightest of a, a, a certain... Uh, th this isn't Xbox, but, you know, let me go back even farther. Tell me it doesn't remind you even a little bit of a certain blue hedgehog, or even a, a particularly fast animated Mexican rat. And I, I know that last one isn't video game related, uh, but to me, 
as I watch him just go from side to side and bounce every which way, that's all I can think about. <laughs> it's, it's just fucking redonkulous is what it is. I'm sorry, this, this, this whole movie is just so fucking shitty. I mean, in one scene, they're even eating a CGI pear. Do you know how much a pear can go at Aldi's? How hard would it have been to, to get a real pear? You know, come on. But no, a fucking CGI pear for crying out loud. They couldn't, they couldn't even bother to go to Whole Foods, you know? Or, or even, even just get one of those fake decorative ones from Bed Bath & Beyond. No, they had to have some, oh, probably some poor bastard sitting at a computer for, well, likely at least, I'm going to say, ten times as long as it would have taken to go to the grocery store. Trying to figure out a way, you know, to make sure that he was able to bring the most lifelike pair to the big screen. Are you fucking joking? Uh, well, of course you're not, because I, I can't even begin to make a joke out of that. It's a joke in and of itself. And for crying out loud. What the f- What the- Why? Whatever. But as I was saying, it's the same old bedraggled eye candy that we've come- <laughs> To, to expect, you know, that, that we've become accustomed to. And, to some extent, we were even slightly used to it by then. You know, because, I mean, 97 is when he decided to fuck with the originals. So, you know, you, you had 97, 98, 99, you had 2000, 2001, and even 2002. So yeah, you had at least six years to be able to to just come to terms with it, you know? And it all came complete with the insanely lazadaisical writing that usually came with such a thing. Especially from, from you know, people like Lucas or, hell... Well, maybe not at this point, Spielberg, but, you know, I mean, there were, there were other cases. And as we all sit down with the lights dimming all around us, and that 20th Century Fox logo shines bright on the big screen, only to soon give way to the iconic scrolling text, and the even more iconic... Johnny Williams' score, we seemed willing, for whatever reason, to forgive and forget, you know? But I guess it might have been because at that point, he hadn't screwed us over completely just yet, you know? I mean, at this point, eh, yeah, he fucked with us, but only little by little. But yeah, he, like I said... We were willing to let bygones be bygones. We had, 
we all had that, that same courageous optimism in our hearts that the prequels, and with them the, the entire franchise, could still be saved. And as we clung to that unrealistic hope, as we let out that collective sigh and said, well, as much of a loathsomely uh, jumbled mess and bungling misstep as the Phantom Menace was, this one has to be better, right? But no. <laughs> we had no idea how wrong we would prove to be on that. But by the time we got to the words, Overwhelmed Jedi, it was in that moment we then realized in all the time that was supposed to have passed between the end of Phantom Menace and the beginning of, of this, we apparently <laughs> had missed absolutely nothing. Nada. Zilch. There was absolutely nothing of substance that happened whatsoever in all that time that our frenemies had been away. And we were soon to be made to look absurdly gullible as we came to another harsh reality that all we had, had ever had was little more than an abundance of misplaced faith that would eventually come, um, and in due time, very short due time, to be betrayed. And what makes the fact that this movie was so bad, so bad, is that at times, it, it almost seems like Lucas was was truly trying to bring to mind the, the franchise's glory days. And not doing it in the sort of way that J.J. did with damn near a complete and utter clone of its glory days. A uh, clone. But with, with little hints, just, just here and there, slight homage of the, the previous outings scattered all over this thing. And more power to him for that. Because while I may not be a fan of trying to damn near make carbon copies uh, out of something, and while trying to pass uh, it, it off as, as new and original, I damned near wept. As that wrinkled old lesbian mumbled, Chewie, we're home. In Force Awakens, you know? Anyway, who cares? Whatever's clever. But at this moment, every single time he tried to make that connection between the legendary and, well... Whatever this was, even if you wouldn't know it by the financial success 
this freaking thing had after its uh, mid-May release of that year. <sighs> he, yeah, he tried, but uh, much like the rest of this damn fucker, he failed miserably. So, you know, yeah. But luckily for him, as we all saw, <laughs> apparently he didn't have to succeed. Because the money this fucker made was more than enough to mask the shortcomings of the film and everyone associated with it. It was, uh, yeah, it didn't make his much money as it could have, and we all saw that. But for some reason or another, it was a success. A success, mind you, that came as great news and, and even greater relief for Lucasfilms. And to, to some extent, 20th Century Fox. Uh, once you consider the shitload of money they dumped into the project... However, it also became the first installment within the franchise to be internationally outgrossed in its year of release. So, <laughs> I guess, for better or worse, they had that going for them, you know? But either way, it's time to stop babbling and, and get to the movie, you know, because... I did enough babbling in that last episode. So it's it's time to get to the movie. If you can even call it a movie rather than just a pile of, eh, whatever. You know what? I've stalled long enough. Let's get on with this uh, non-existent action. Non-existent suspense. And of course, the, the non-existent fun uh, of Star Wars. Attack of of the abhorrently heinous riffraff. I mean, a, a, attack of the clones. All right. So, basically, the movie starts off as any of in in the series did, because as I said, you had the text crawl informing us all that uh, the Galactic Republic uh, is now left in a sort of chaotic mayhem following the assault on the people of the hermit planet of Naboo by the Trade Federation in Phantom. And we're basically told that if they don't get their act together, rather than endlessly debating the pointless twaddle of everyday poppycock, there are thousands of star systems that are apparently ready and willing to form what I can only call the Confederate States of Our Little Flick. You know, because that's basically what they would be. And they're led by one Count Dooku, a former Jedi Knight, played by the inconceivably great and late Christopher Lee. And, uh, the Count? Eh, he's more than willing to help these allies go into business for themselves as they collectively revolt under his guidance. 
So isn't that special? And with that little band of merry aliens breathing down the united neck of the Senate, galactic delegates from all over have decided to vote on whether or not they see fit to start assembly on a manufactured militia to help the Jedi combat this little uprising. And while this this all seems at least slightly interesting, you have to realize that it all went down in the span of a decade. Take the 80s or, or the 90s, you know, and look at everything that went down in those decades as far as, well, take any aspect. Take politics as, as this movie does. Or hell, even take something as boring as baseball and you'll see that, shit, in the span of a decade, there is so much more that happened than happened apparently uh, for these people. Because if that's all that happened, I guess it's, it's safe to say that it's been a slow 10 years for the Old Republic. And actually, it's been even more sluggish for Obi-Wan. You know, Benny Boy Kenobi. As in, in that time, the ill-fated Hayden Christensen, who had this stink bug cast in his lap uh, while faced with the impossible task of making it all work in his debut as a teenage Anakin Skywalker. Well, he's, he's turned from a little whiny brat that makes us all long for his whiny son, Luke, into a powerful and yet arrogant, cantankerous little twerp as he rests happily atop the, the pedestal he thinks he belongs on as Padawan apprentice to Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi. A position, mind you, that he's had since the end of Phantom Menace. And as the proposed chosen one, who's thought to be uh, the one to finally bring balance to the Force. You know, according to the prophecy that we just found out about uh, only a few short years ago. Even though we've, at this point, we've had the franchise around for, oh, what? 15 years? Over 15 years at that point? I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> we just now found out about this, uh, this prophecy that's <laughs> constantly mentioned in the prequels. Then just dropped by the King of Continuity in, in the original trilogy. You know, shit. You'd think that by now, seeing as George mentions it over and over, and then just never at all, or is that never at all and then just over and over? Hey, fuck. After all those little kinks he worked out of the originals, with alteration after alteration after alteration, you couldn't make some mention of that shit somewhere? 
somehow. Then again, I suppose he, he's got to leave something for Disney to do, even though they have yet to do it. But hopefully, somehow, they can clean that shit up. Uh, you know, during their time of fucking everything else up, you know? But, yeah, a guy can hope. Because, I mean, they're at least trying uh, a few good steps, you know? I mean, they're, they're at least stumbling in the right direction. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're falling ass over tea kettle at times. But they're, they're at least going to... To bring us back to the original trilogy the way it was meant to be, you know? And I hate what they're doing to these new flicks, but as far as that goes, that's just beautiful, you know? So maybe they don't suck near as much as I, I thought they did. I mean, I'm sure they still suck, you know? But maybe... Maybe not to the extent that I proposed uh, a, a couple of times so far that that they might. So maybe maybe they don't suck near as much as I thought they did. <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, okay. But yeah, no. I mean, at least they're they're trying. I mean, they're stumbling. Uh, ass over tea kettle at times with with these new flicks but at least they're gonna bring us the original trilogy the way that the way that it was meant to be you know so more power to them but whatever let's hurry this up shall we because we're about to miss one of the only good parts in this whole fucking thing as the queen gets blown to pieces what that's right I said it, the queen. But, but let's let's not get too excited, guys, because I should really warn you there. I'm not talking about Padme, okay? Because, in fact, she's still very much alive, and again brought to us via the the jail bait known as Natalie Portman, or, or at least at that time she was jail bait. But anyway. As she returns to Coruscant to vote. But, yeah, no. It it wasn't her that got blowed up, okay? Apparently, she just took a demotion or a, a pre-motion or... I'm not sure which, but either way, she's 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 now a senator rather than, than the queen. But still... Any movie that starts off with someone getting barbecued, eh, you know, I mean, maybe it can't be all that bad. I mean, this one is, but, eh, you know, maybe I need to kind of lay off of it for a second. But anyway, after getting her split ends uh, a bit singed, the senator heads off to meet with her old friend, Chancellor Palpatine who's just finished a slight powwow with Yoda and company, as he and his group of creepy-looking monks wax philosophical about the latest going-ons around them. And now, while anyone who knows anything about the extended universe knows that the Viceroy of the Trade Federation was behind her close call, doing so, 
in the name of retribution for the Naboo crushing his tiny droids at the end of Menace. We're not, uh, uh, apparently, supposed to know all that. And apparently neither is Padme, who wastes no time in blaming political idealist Dooku, you know, which, which is a notion that Sam Jackson's Mace Windu laughs off as a bowl of, of womp rat droppings as Sam seems to, to fade in and out of consciousness long enough to keep us interested. But whoever's behind the danger? Well, Ian McDiarmid's uh, Palpatine is all over that like stink on shit as he coyly shows that the Jedi aren't the only ones capable of the Force's mind trickery, while conveniently suggesting that the Jedi take point and watch over the Senator. And, you know, I mean, even as he does so, within minutes of this damn thing starting, you already get the, uh, the feeling that he's up to something. Because conveniently, he even gets them to assign Obi-Wan and Anakin to protect her. So, I, I get the feeling that he knows something we don't know. So with that, we finally got ourselves enough eggs to bake this fucking cake. Because, well, at least I think that's what happens, you know? Because truth is... I I don't know for sure, cause can can you blame me? I mean, outside of seeing this thing in the theaters, every time I get to this point, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, who really paid attention to this droll at this point? You know, I I don't know. I mean, is it just me or who who really paid attention to this droll at this point anyway? No one. That's who. And if you expect that of me, then our our friendship is just, it's, it's over. Because obviously you wish ill will upon me for uh, some reason or another, good sire. Or you'd understand that I'm, I'm dealing with a hunk of butt cluster brownies here that's uh, over two hours long and has, has not a single line of memorable, quotable dialogue. I mean, think think back to the, the originals. I mean, you had everything from you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy to uh, I'm afraid the deflector shields will be quite operational when your friends arrive. But here... I mean, I can take dull dialogue. I can even take wooden characterization. But to force me to munch on a bowl of the same fucking slop as this is just brutal. But luckily for you, as I've already said time and time again, I'm a glutton for punishment, you know, and... And give me enough booze, and I'll take a whole lot of punishment. So, right now, <laughs> I'm willing to watch the thing 
all over again in the name of entertaining you. Or at least I'm uh, willing to play uh, the occasional guessing game on, on what exactly went down. And since I don't have enough whiskey to completely get me through uh, and still have enough for the next flick. You know, before these booze uh, wear off, let's just get on with it. And, and you know, yeah, eventually we'll have to transition to the, the occasional guessing game, but for now, let's have some fun. Because Palpatine suggests Obi-Wan and Annie, and Windu goes right along with this line of thinking, you know, and he thinks nothing of it. But as he exits, I'm guessing he just wanted to get the fuck out of there and go play some, I don't know, some intergalactic golf or head on over to the space strip club or I, fuck, who knows, who cares? Let him do what he do, you know, because... Uh, after all, this is Sam Jackson we're talking about. I mean, one of the coolest mofos in all of space and time. Second to maybe only Billy D, uh, who is so damn cool that I swear to Bob, more than likely, if, if you were to walk past Billy D, even to this day, ah, shit, you'd go from... From virgin to seven months pregnant in about five steps. But whatever, because as I said, let him do what he do. <laughs> and why? Because he can fucking get away with it. That's why. Uh, but whatever the case, he's gone. And we soon see Obi-Wan and good old Anakin making their way to the senator as Anakin continues to sweat like a stuck pig in heat on a hot summer's day. And, and yeah. Uh, where Phantom Menace didn't have a main character, other than little old Jake, who showed up so late in the game, I tend to not count him, really. This one has two main characters, really. I mean, if you look at it, leaving us to split our focus amongst uh, uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin, both uh, eh, semi-equally, which, you know, is just totally unnecessary and, uh, and unneeded, because we're already fairly invested in Obi-Wan. So, you know, I mean, they they could have at least... Oh, God. You know, I, I, I'm fighting the urge... To say that they could have at least cut his screen time in half. But then again, that that could have actually done us dirty. Because, shit, what would that mean? That would mean giving Hayden twice as much screen time as he already got. And what he already got is a load of creamy bantha spunk. So, I mean, but, I, maybe, maybe... If you were to, you know, uh, lay off on Anakin and on Obi-Wan, both, and then give either Padme or even, even Palpatine, you know, shit, I know, you lay off a little bit of Annie, and then you lay a little bit off of Obi, 
And then you take the time that you laid off of both of them and you give a little bit to Palpatine and you give a little bit to Padme and you're golden. That would make us care a little bit more about the Emperor. That would make us care a little bit more when Padme gets off in the next one. And really, I don't see the downside to it. So, I mean, yeah, there you go. Because as they step off the high-speed elevator, with Anakin hoping to be greeted by Padme's high beams, instead, they, and in turn we, get Jar jar But don't fret, he's not sticking around. He's really just there at the, at the moment, so he can act as, as hype man for the room, while he alerts everyone and anyone of the duo's arrival, declaring their presence to the senator, who greets them accordingly. But now I I fear I must warn you, now would be a, a great time to brace yourself for, for the cheesy lines that'll soon come out of Anakin's mouth as he uh, tries to put the moves on the gal in his never-ending attempt to get some Naboo nookie cookie. An attempt, mind you, bound to fall flatter than an underdeveloped 19-year-old gal. In fact, every time she sees Hayden, all she sees is that cute and, and cuddly, or at least that, that's apparently what you get from her, Jake Lloyd. But yeah, whatever. As they sit down and chit-chat for a moment... Padme makes no bones about getting down to the brass tacks of things, making clear that she wants to to know exactly who's out for her head. And actually, we kind of want to know too, you know, mainly so we could shake their hand, but eh, whatever. Unfortunately, even as gung-ho as Annie is to find the dude, Obi-Wan, uh, he's not willing to do anything that he's not getting paid for. But, then again, he's not getting paid. Which, uh, probably uh, is what accounts for all the yada 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 yakety yak we have to sift through as our our little Jedi BFFs do a, a little recon that night around the Senator's new digs. But whatever they see fit to drone on about, they better do it quickly and try to be mindful that the old gals sound asleep in the next room, willingly being used as bait to bring whoever wishes her harm out of hiding. But as they bicker about Anakin not keeping his eyes on the task at hand, rather than on a Padme's sweater meat, it seems they're unaware of a droid at uh, Big Boob Betty's window, dropping off either a, a couple of uh, the biggest night crawlers I've ever seen, or a pair of some some at least moderately sized stink pickles. 
And don't even get me started about the fact that when protecting her from an assassination plot, instead of secluding her from the rest of the universe in any way possible, they fucking hide her, uh, if you can call it that, in a, in a highly visible high-rise smack dab in the middle of a metropolitan area, with plenty of windows which she just can't seem to stay away from, where they apparently don't even bother to draw the blinds of said windows, as she constantly does just about anything she can to be in full view of anyone, including that middle-aged Wookiee that lives across the way. But whatever, because as the dookie sticks begin to crawl over to old Sleeping Beauty's heaving cleavage, uh, just about the time we think they've gone undetected and are well on their way to entering through the back door, our goofus and gallant rush in and make mince meat out of whatever those things were. And this, this comes just in time, because personally, I was beginning to think that Obi-Wan had turned sort of pansy on us, you know, but here he goes making a liar out of me as Ewan McGregor's undying shame spots the, the troublesome droid that I mentioned a second ago and dives out the window onto the, the flying little sucker, who then takes off into some oncoming traffic, and right over uh, the thousands of feet that are now placed firmly between the uh, old beardy McCranky pants and the pavement. As, as this, uh, this, of course, now leaves Anakin to hop onto uh, uh, what looks to be an interplanetary El Camino and speed off in, in pursuit of his friend as a chase scene ensues that's about as routine as, as my morning ritual of scratching myself in all the fun places. And uh, Teacher's pet over there doesn't even have his driver's license yet. So, <sighs> you know, I mean... All things considered, this, uh, this scene right here takes way too long, you know? But whatever, because as the droid finally comes into view of its owner, and Obi-Wan still barely hanging on, the owner notices the stowaway holding on to her little friend for dear life as the, the most worthless hitman or woman or whatever the hell she is, he is, it is, uh, in the galaxy, quickly fires off a shot at the prick, only to miss and hit the droid itself, sending McGregor plummeting to his death had he not been able to grab onto Anakin's bumper below as it is. But now, as he grabs on and climbs into the passenger seat, he's only got a little time to breathe, because... Now, they're off to catch that pesky, uh, poor excuse for an assassin who's now made its little escape. And now, as you can imagine, this of course leads uh, to a little game of cat and mouse that even Ray Charles could have spotted. 
But after a shortcut or two, that still doesn't make this movie short enough, Anakin dives out of his speeder onto the hood of the Assassin's POS from what seems to be at least a few hundred feet above, in a way and at a rate that frankly defies everything that I know about gravity or, or science or how the world works or what should happen to his body as, as it impacts on the surface of the craft uh, after uh, falling that far and that fast. But never mind any of that pesky logic, because as he whips out his lightsaber, and we wonder how he can be uh, all that certain that uh, where he landed was indeed her speeder, as he hacks away trying to kill the driver uh, and whoever's in that car that he just kind of... Uh, closes his eyes and, and crosses his fingers in hopes that he's got the right person. You know, as, as he causes the speeder to crash and burn, it's over. Almost. Of course, not the movie, but uh, this little chase, you know, which at least that's over. But before the movie ever really gives you uh, time to contemplate the stunningly stupefying mumbo-jumbo, of the last few moments. Kenobi quickly reprimands his student in a way that shows just how much of an ass he really is, as he jokingly states that Anakin may be the death of him. <laughs> Which, eh, in a way, is eh, just plain awkward, you know? But ah, no time to laugh about that, because... They soon stroll into a nearby bar in pursuit of the assassin. Uh, a bar, mind you, that, in fact, uh, actually has a strong resemblance to, to what Moss Eisley Spaceport may look like if uh, it were turned into a, a nightclub. So, of course, they enter, and they reconnoiter, and quickly locate and subdue the assassin, Zam Whistle. However, before she can give them any information that actually <laughs> might be useful, eh, wouldn't you know it, she's killed with a poisonous dart as she goes from hot chick to wrinkly green alien in all of about a... But, but yeah, the assassin... <laughs> was a shapeshifter, which actually makes you wonder why she, uh, or, or he, or, uh, it, uh, was, was wearing a, a bit of a mask all this time, when they really could have just morphed their way into to looking any which way, like anyone or anything that they wanted. But I guess, uh, eh, they didn't think of that now, did they? Whatever. So the next morning, the pair reconvenes with the rest of the Jedi Council to discuss any future moves, as, as it's decided that Obi-Wan will go one way and Anakin will go another in his first lone assignment in ten years, even, even against uh, the strong objections and worries of, of an overly cautious uh, uh, Obi-Wan who seems uh, afraid 
that the foolish Annie isn't quite ready to go out on his own just yet. But he's he's ordered to escort Padme back to her home planet immediately in a move that everyone knows eh, she's just going to be tickled about. Because, you know, no one would ever think to look for her at home. Whatever. And while Annie's daydreaming about finally being alone with Hooters McBoob, uh, Obi's been ordered to find out uh, all that he can about the poisonous dart that just killed Zam, in hopes that it'll then lead him and, and everyone to whoever hired the shape-shifting assassin. And finally, after all that, uh, a little help from the sweet-talking Palpatine and a whole lot of creepy looks from Anakin, we finally have our chance to get off this godforsaken planet, as Padme finally reluctantly agrees to leave. Uh, don't like, like I said, don't get me wrong. It's not like she went easily. But in the end, Palpatine helped out a bit, and, and she was even quickly outwined by Anakin before deciding to you know, just, just go along with it. Uh, if it meant to that he'd shut up for a moment. So, that's that, then. And, uh, the naggy Heggy gets to packing her unmentionables, and eh, so does Padme. And, and now that I think about it, in the scene where Padme is packing for Naboo, again, there she goes. She's doing so right in front of the window. You know, in broad daylight, as a pair of, of robots look through as, as if they're uh, some sort of mechanical perverts. And yet, Anakin does nothing as these tin cans give their antenna some relief to the sight of his woman. I mean, shit. I think not. Okay? I mean, fuck. Simply put... The Jedi make absolutely no effort to conceal her in any way when supposedly protecting her. So, the Secret Service, they ain't. And as for the help that Palpatine uh, gives in this matter, some could certainly say that because he was the one that suggested the pair go to Naboo in the first place, that he saw this love and the path that it would take. Uh, Anakin on. And uh, in Return of the Jedi, he says that all that has come to pass has done so according to his plan. But, so, if the Force allows him to see the future <laughs> that well, how could he not see it coming when Darth uh, deadlifts that uh, wrinkly old dickhead and and tosses him into the well, you know, uh, into his well-overdue death. Just food for thought. But, yeah, that's it. They're leaving, kind of. At least uh, they will right after assigning Jar Jar to be uh, the planet's uh, official delegate within the Senate. And, uh, you know, I just, I can't help but feel that maybe, just, just maybe... 
with Jar Jar having about as much brain matter as a, as a tin can. This? Not such a good idea, you know? But while they're flying among the stars in an effort to get those pint-sized sweater drugs out of harm's way, uh, well, they're split in town. Obi-Wan goes and visits an old friend, who is apparently a, a well-informed former mercenary turned fry cook. What the fuck? Anyway, this Dax, or whoever he is, informs Obi-Wan that the, the dart that uh, Obi-Wan now has was manufactured on, on the remote ocean planet of Kamino, about 12 parsecs from the current location, even though, as far as I know, <laughs> parsecs is not any sort of, of measurement of any sort of, of, of distance, but it's on a planet that doesn't really even show up on any navigation map in, in the archives readily available to to every Jedi Council member. So it's it's almost as if the planet was ripped from all records and maps, and you know, I mean, just it's as if it doesn't even exist. But that's something that only uh, could have been done by a Jedi. And right about now. This would be a great time to go drop the kids off at the pool or make yourself a sandwich or something. Or both. Hell, like, do it at the same time. I don't, I don't know. Go rub one off. Do, do something. Anything, really. Just so you don't have to sit through the next... Eh, you got six minutes. Because it's about six, maybe seven minutes of filler. Trust me. Do yourself a favor. Go stretch your legs... Rest your brain, fill that tummy, uh, but be quick about it, because like I said, you only got about, well, and now it's it's more like five or six minutes, because you already wasted a few seconds uh, listening to my ass, and actually, because you're only listening to my ass and not actually watching the movie, sit your ass down and stay right there. You know, I mean, if we were watching the movie together, I'd, I'd say go ahead and, you know, I can wait, but... Really, no, we, we can't. We can't. Because, <sighs> you know, while, while you would have been gone, uh, Obi-Wan headed to Kamino, and he's just now getting there. So, as I said, if, if you even thought for a second that I was serious, sit your ass back down. Now. Because as he comes out of the cold into a, a seemingly random building, he finds that the Prime Minister of the area is expecting him, which can never be good seeing as he's never even heard of, been to, or, or met anybody from this rain-infested hellhole. And yet, he follows the whatever that long neck thing is to meet the Prime Minister. Great thinking, Obi-Wan. <laughs> good idea. <laughs> And upon meeting the Prime Minister of Kamino and sitting down for a chat, Obi uh, discovers that an army of clone troopers had been ordered by, by the, the slain leader of the Jedi Council ten years ago and is being secretly produced for the Republic. 
using the DNA of a bounty hunter named Django Fett as their genetic template. And all this does is make me wonder why a ruthless bounty hunter hired an assassin to do something that he could have easily done his damn self. And seriously, couldn't couldn't he have just off the senator on his own, you know? I mean, this is this is the father of one of the most notorious bounty hunters in the galaxy in in just about oh shit, 20 some or 30 some whatever it is, a year's time. This is Django Fett. Papa to, to Bubba Fett. And he he couldn't take a, a moment out of his day to do this his, his own damn self. Just saying. But as if that wasn't cool enough that we, we have a glance at, at the Fett family. Lucas thought it would be a great idea to leave the only bit of interesting film in this whole mess so far in order to go check on Anakin and, and, and Padme. You know, along with her perky pinkies. So we, he, he could show that they were they were falling in love on Naboo. Kinda. But not really. And then suddenly, we're back to Obi-Wan. Seriously, it, it's, it's like the most grueling tennis match that you've ever seen. With its, its constant back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back again. But with Obi-Wan touring the cloning facility and realizing just how deep this uh, shrouded conspiracy goes, just when you think it's really gonna get good, no time for that now, because it's back to Anakin and Padme on Naboo. <laughs> to solidify the idea that Padme apparently uh, no longer you know, being a total witch with a capital B, <sighs> you know, begins to to feel exactly what Anakin has always felt, you know, and, uh, and they're beginning to fall in love, I think. And you know, for all the time we spend on Naboo with the uh, with these freaks. I gotta ponder the question. What if Naboo was nixed instead of Alderaan? You know, what if it was put in its place this whole time? Because if, if that had been the case, you know, we'd, it would have actually made us care even more. When we had seen Darth or Tarkin, take out that planet within the blink of an eye. Because, I mean, what other excuse could they have had for this back and forth? You know, there really, as is, there was none. But that, that would have given an excuse. Because you would have been focusing on, on the relationship between Padme and Anakin. But not only just focusing on that alone. You know, because... Focusing on that in and of itself takes away time that they could be focusing on other things, like the friendship of, of Anakin and Obi-Wan. 
Oh, and, oh, shit, I don't know. The whole clone thing? So, yeah, I mean, they at, at least if they had made it to be the planet that eventually would just get blown out of the cosmos, it, it would have given reason for all this. But no. You know, I mean, and as is, that's just stupid, because why would you, in a movie called Attack of the Frickin' Clones, why would you want to focus <laughs> on those clones? You know, I mean, why would you want to do a thing like that? But then again, if we listen to George, it seems to just tell us about the clones and about the deep-rooted friendship between Master and Padawan. Uh, according to him, that should really be enough, even though we're, we're shown everything to the contrary from the very get-go, as they are constantly shown bickering and arguing about things like who killed who. But, well, to just tell us one thing, even though you're showing us another, that should be more than, than we need to go along on blind faith, as we always have, no matter how many times it bites us in the booty hole. And we should all just go ahead and shut up. At least, that's the case if you were listening to George. Because anything else, uh, I guess, I don't know, puts too much emphasis on one and drains power from the other or something. Which is sad, considering the, the love story set up in this flick between Anakin and Padme's meat cannons. And just how weak it is, at best. And, and the fact that it's more like a, a romantic tale written by someone who eh, doesn't even really believe in love or romance. As the borderline psychotic sociopath... <laughs> Anakin says, I love you, in the most bizarrely forced way, with absolutely no discernible love felt behind the words or actions at all. But then again, that would explain why love leads to the dark side, you know? You know, love leads to anger, you know, all that bullshit. In fact, now that I think of it, this sort of thing happens way too frequently in uh, Attack of the Clones, and, and the prequels overall. So, to be so often told rather than shown just makes you feel that maybe they forgot to film scenes, or, or that they accidentally cut too much, and that there's... Ultimately, uh, something missing that should have been there, and no one wants to fess up. <laughs> but if that's the case, all it does is eventually force them to just say, Eh, screw it. We'll just tell them how it is. That'll be good enough. So to have shown most or all of it, instead of just being told, you know would have, have really been a kind of nice cause at this point. You know, because at this point, 
If we're just going to be told, why not just read a book based on the fucker, you know? I'm just, I'm just saying. It would have been nice to have seen uh, it up on the big screen. And as I said, it would have been even nicer to see it all unfold on, on Alderaan. Rather than Naboo. You know, I mean, you had... Because, <laughs> really, in, in New Hope, all Alderaan uh, really was, was the home planet uh, of Leia. Who, at that point, you really didn't care much about. I mean, now, retroactively, we do, because we all know the damn story. But, at the time, you really didn't. So, imagine having been one of the very first to see that in the theaters, and then years later, get to see what would become Darth Vader, Leia's father, falling in love with her mother on the same planet that you know gets blown just out of the water, well, the proverbial water, but still, and later on down the road. I mean, that would have, <laughs> that would have at least made those people just really kind of enjoy that moment. You might have actually given a wet, juicy fuck. I mean, if 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 you had been one of those to see the originals uh, in the theaters, that is, or even if you were just watching these movies now and in succession, and not having any idea of the story, which if you don't have an idea of the story by now, where the fuck have you been? Come on. But yeah, it, it would take those people, and you'd really give a shit when that planet implodes, or explodes, or... Eh, it, it just goes bye-bye. But guess what? Uh, just about the time that we start thinking about all that, and considering the implications of such a move... And how it, it could have given some weight to some things. That's right. Back to Obi-Wan. Because now, as I was getting to earlier, upon hearing the origins of these clones, Obi's force senses are raging as, as he immediately, or almost immediately, requests a meeting with old Django, who he now suspects as being the one that's out for the life of Senator Amidala. But so much for that, because upon meeting him and his personal unaltered clone of an adopted son, Boba, Obi-Wan learns that it was not the long-dead Jedi Master who hired the clone to uh, be part of this little endeavor, but a man named Tyrannus. And at this point... You could cut the tension with a knife, or with a lightsaber. So, of course, it only makes sense that we cut back to good old Double A, Annie and Amidala, who I must say, at this point, Amidala has been constantly teasing the young man, or at least the trousers of the young man, with her slew of of sexy lingerie and undergarments and and outfits. I swear, it's gotta give him some of the worst case of boneritis known to man while making him want to land his TIE fighter in her spaceport 
and kiss her sweet outer rim as he gets his space rocks off. You know, and just when we think we might see that sort of action, which would be more action than we've seen throughout this whole damn thing so far, she puts up a blockade of her own to defend herself from any and all entry of his X-Wing into her Star Destroyer. So, that kind of sucks <laughs> for him and us. But, never you mind, because, again, we are now swept away back to Obi-Wan, who's informing Yoda and Mace of all that he's found before he leaves the planet. Which, if you ask me, is just great in this case. As I'm currently out of suggestive Star Wars puns for the moment, uh, between Anakin and, and Padme, you know? So, I think I'll just rest and, and watch as he comes to blows with a Fett Senior and uh, bef before making his exit. Or, or, or not. Cause meanwhile, on Naboo... Anakin becomes troubled by what is either an S&M wet dream or some sort of series of nightmare, uh, nighttime premonitions of his mother in pain. But whatever they are, he decides that against Obi-Wan's orders, he must leave to find and help his dear old mom. An idea with which Padme is just all too eager to go along with, and uh, even tag along daring as, as they travel to Tunisia, I mean, uh, Tatooine. <laughs> Whoopsie, why do I keep doing that? But upon arrival, they soon come across an old friend and an older and even more culturally insensitive, Watto, who doesn't have good news for little Annie. Because it seems that, eh, some time ago, his mother was sold to some dude uh, with a Norwegian-sounding last name who then proceeded to free her and, and marry her. So I guess that's, that's good, uh, I suppose. But the feel-goods uh, stop right there, as after a heartwarming and awkward family reunion of sorts, in his meeting his new stepfather, Clegg, uh, as well as his stepbrother, Owen, Anakin learns that his mother is nowhere to be found. And in fact, she was, she was kidnapped by Tusken Raiders almost a month earlier, while having gone out and about early to help out on the farm. And after she went up and missing... Thirty men went out after them uh, in the hunt to get her back, but only four returned, minus a leg or two. So, I mean, that means that these Tusken Raiders took out roughly 26 men, and as far as they knew, she was either still with her captives or dead. And if she was still with her captives... Uh, she probably wished she was dead. But, you know, that that's not something that would uh, deter old Anakin. Because, yeah, there was little anyone could do about her current situation. 
But Anakin doesn't let that get in the way. Because he abruptly gets up and leaves his new friends and his new little makeshift family to go hunt down his precious mommy's captors. So of course, this is the perfect time to leave this possibly legendary moment in action and in character development. (laughs) The kind of character development that you just really don't see anymore. Because it's just about that time that (laughs) Obi-Wan is arriving on the rocky terrain of some remote planet that we don't really know the name of yet. But, but wait! We're suddenly back with Anakin of Green Gables again. I told you it was back and forth, back and forth, but, well, you didn't listen to me. Uh, now, now you know. So they are going to show it. Okay, folks. As I said, this has the chance to be both a, a legendary moment to, in, in showing the seeds of evil being planted in our young friend, and a chance to right the character development wrongs of the past movie. So here we go. Okay. Anakin arrives at the, the Raiders' tribe's uh, campsite in the cover of darkness, and he has either done his homework or is just damned lucky in the Force Department because he somehow knows exactly what hut she happens to be in as he enters through a a makeshift door, which he quickly creates for himself with his lightsaber, which, you know, is kind of nice. But he enters to find her tied up and beaten to a bloody pulp, which is great, you know, but here it comes, here it comes. He comes to her rescue, only to discover that it's too late as she dies in a, a more dramatic fashion than a high school nerd playing the part of Lincoln in Honest Abe Goes to the Theater. But filled with the hurt at the loss of his mother, uh, as the rage fills him from that, he, he just barrels towards those responsible and takes them all out. You know, little orphan Annie lashes out the only way he feels he knows how in this moment. That is supposed to be a a heart-wrenching show of raw emotion. But then, it just isn't. You know, because the moment that that is about to happen, they, they take any and all emotion. And any chance to get right to the action, as he kills every last moving thing at that Tuscan campsite, in a moment that we were never, ever gonna forget. And they make it a a, a scene that we'll never, ever get to see. So, (laughs) fuck you, (laughs) G-Man. Fuck you. But yeah, he is hacking away, and... All we can do was hear it and imagine it, which, again, we could have just read a book based on it if we were going to get that, you know? But as we hear what we at least think to be the the voice of Qui-Gon Jinn Fizz, you know, and his ghost, trying to stop Anakin before letting the the young lad return with the, the matriarch's dead body 
you know, to his his newfound stepfamily, and then revealing his crime to Padme, who, for one reason or another, comforts him. Which, I'm sorry, but if I had just told my wife that I had (laughs) slaughtered a bunch of women and children, screw that. (laughs) If I admitted such a mass killing to my wife, The next words to probably be heard within that household would be, Yeah, yes, hello, please? But as he rambles on about becoming so powerful that he could stop people from dying and somehow blaming his anger and his frustration on his mentor, all she can do is comfort him. Ironic, isn't it? The one who wants to stop people from dying will become the one responsible for the the most death in the galaxy. Starting along with with these women and children, and and moving right along to other children and and the woman who now comforts him. But well, you know, I'm getting a, I'm getting ahead of myself. Just as soon as he finishes. His five minutes of grieving over a, a loss that it would take most years, even even lifetimes to get over. He leaves as we all wonder how awkward that has to be for the Lars family. Because after that, I would have quickly sent Obi-Wan and that little rugrat, Luke, on their way when they showed up on the doorstep, you know? I mean, it, it was just years later, but I would have, I would have avoided them like the plague. Anyway, he returns to his ship with Padme and and finds that Obi Wan has sent a holographic message to him with uh, what we soon find out is is a planet called Geonosis, because it seems he's discovered Dooku's authorization of the assassination attempt at the request of Viceroy Gunray, who we all remember as the the little green Asian stereotype from the last movie. And we also find uh, that the Separatists are developing a new battle droid army, because apparently the last one worked out so damned well for them, I guess. However, (laughs) before Obi can presumably delve into a how stupid that shit really is. He has to ramble on only a bit longer, as as quickly as he can, before he's captured mid-transmission. And in the light of one of their own going down, as dignitaries and delegates debate the future of their political futures, and the chance to continue uh, debating such things, uh, like the creation of a, a manufactured army to help fight off evil, Master Windu orders Anakin to stay where he is and, and protect the senator. Luckily, he's on a ship. So technically, wherever the ship goes, he goes. And thus, he's still staying put. And I say luckily, because... While he wants to stay put, both he and Padme wish to, to save their friend. Whatever, who, who cares? Because soon, 
We see bright-eyed Dookie Pie, the man that once trained Qui-Gon Jinn Blossom, truly enter the fray at long last, as our main antagonist unsuccessfully attempts to make an ally of uh, Obi-Wan as the loneliest number, who he's, he's of course had stashed in a cave the last few minutes. So that he can, he can have the chance to reveal that the Republic is being secretly controlled by a Sith Lord named Darth Sidious, which we already know. You know, but which is a fact that Obi-Wan finds hard to choke down. While all this is going on, though, a- Anakin and Padme head to Geonosis to rescue Obi-Wan. And Palpatine is reluctantly, or so he says, granted vast emergency powers to be able to organize the clone army and send them into battle, thanks to a motion put forth by the idiotic, unsuspecting Patsy, Jar Jar Stinks, I mean Binks, the most hated character in Star Wars canon, who is now indirectly responsible for the fall of the Old Republic and and the future uh, near annihilation of the Jedi Order somewhere down the line. As the Senate votes to give the Supreme Chancellor sweeping emergency powers to go uh, to war against the Separatists in a ploy sort of reminiscent of Hitler. So... As you can see, the Jedi haven't much time to waste, which is exactly why. About this time, and almost immediately after Anakin and Padme and her lung protectors touch down, old Mason the Face is headed straight their way as Yoda splits from the pack and goes to visit the clone army. And unfortunately for Annie and, and friends, and, you know, Padme and, and her two friends, after a longer and, and more cartoonish than necessary sequence on a droid factory conveyor belt, their rescue attempt is cut short as they are quickly captured by Django, handcuffed and ordered to be publicly executed in some sort of sci-fi version of of a Roman gladiator-like Colosseum, right there alongside Obi-Wan. And as they're carted off to the middle of the arena to await their almost certainly doomed fate, wouldn't you know it, great timing. You know, because Anakin and Padme finally profess their love for each other before teaming up with Obi-Wan and being pitted against gigantic beasts. However... Just when you think they may be done for, Mace and a team of Jedi have come to lend a helping hand as a great battle erupts against the Separatists in a sea of brightly colored boners. What? Not a fan of uh, lightsaber dick jokes? Hmm. Oh, (laughs) too bad, because that's really all they are, is brightly colored neon phalluses. But fine, just insert your own lightsaber joke, because I'm going to go ahead and stick with the uh, 
lightsaber looks like a big bright cock thing, you know? But point is that as they go mano e mano, heads roll. Literally. I mean, Django's head, to be exact, actually. Uh, forever setting up a young Boba's hatred for the Jedi. But thanks to a droid army showing up, that was about the only big blow that the Jedi dealt the Separatists. Until Yoda arrives, at least, with reinforcements in the form of the clone army. So, the Jedi are, are not to be outnumbered for long, you know? And sensing the jig is up, <laughs> Dooku, with blueprints of a starship that looks an awful lot like the Death Star, in hand, he makes his escape with Obi and Anakin hot on his trail. Minus Anakin's uh, future baby's mama, who uh, just took a tumble to the ground below. But, you know, eh, who needs her? Eh, besides, she'll be back. And once they catch up to him, even though I think that, really, I'm sorry, they, they should really be going up against a patched-up Darth Maul, triumphantly making his return. That's not to be, as they all whip out their, their lustrous incandescent peckers and give us a pretty sweet lightsaber duel once again. Yet, somewhat surprisingly, the geriatric Dooku defeats them both, injuring Obi-Wan and even severing Anakin's right arm. But he's not out of the asteroid field yet, my friends, because it's about that time that Kermit the Frog's illegitimate son arrives to save the day as Yoda challenges the Count himself. And as he flashes a look at his bright little doinker, this film marks the first time that we see Yoda using a lightsaber. You see, previously the puppet had problems grasping his own lightsaber and making it realistic, which, coincidentally, I used to have the same problem. But, you know, I, I, was, I was only six then, and, you know, but that's okay. Fuck you. But unable to defeat Yoda, Dooku flees to Coruscant, taking the plans for the superweapon with him, as he's met by a seriously Sidious, as we see that Dooku was Lord Tyrannus all along, as if we didn't realize that already. And as they finally reunite, we hear Sidious, who we all know now to really be Chancellor Palpatine, State how happy he is that everything is going just as he had foreseen now that the war had uh, broken out. That's right. It seems he's simply orchestrated yet another little handcrafted calamity to fit his own personal and political needs. And that's all this movie really ever was. Just like the last one. That's, that's really all those two movies really were at all. So here's hoping uh, that, that the next one surprises us and, and, and is just a little bit more than that. But don't get your hopes up too high because it, it's not. But you would think that they might be able to come up with a better idea than 
Palpatine screws with everybody. But no. Anyway, as the Jedi gravely acknowledge the start of the Clone Wars, we see Palpatine overseeing the launch of several battalions of clone troopers as a slightly altered version of the legendary Imperial March plays in the background. Meanwhile, in the last scene of the movie, Anakin and Padme now secretly marry on Naboo in the greatest example of an anticlimactic moment. You know, I mean, it, this is one of the greatest anticlimactic moments of all time. Because right there, right then, we fade to black. So, now you see what I mean by overhyped. And an outplacement firm once predicted before the release of this constantly stark reminder that financial success does not a good movie make, that U.S. companies alone could lose more than $300 million in productivity due to employees calling in sick before heading to the theaters to see this massive keister cake over and over and over again. And after all I've told you today, do you really think that they felt it was worth it afterwards? You know, to miss out on a day's paycheck just so they could see this fucker? After all that we just went through, do you finally understand what I mean when I say that the only way to save the franchise is to, to burn a good 90% of the prequels? Do you get that now? I mean, because, I mean, yeah, I, I had a few suggestions on how to save this thing, but as always, I want you to come up with some ideas, you know, and answer the questions I just posed, and then even even come up with other ideas of, of just what we can do if we ever, if anyone ever decides to remake these fuckers, you know, even if it's 50 years down the road. What can we do at that point to save this fucker? I mean, tweet me at, at FickleFanboyRPM and, and just let me know what your thoughts are, you know? Because we, I, as I always say, we, we've got to work together. Especially considering the never-ending money train it all once was. And still is chugging along today in the form of of a continuously rotating cycle of rehashings in, in the likes of novels and comics and rebels. And, and, and then, of course, the movies now, you know? I mean, Force Awakens has come and gone, and, and now we count down the days to that dreaded pile that is probably going to be Episode Eight. But yeah, yeah, I'd, I say just... Burn it all, or at least most of it. Because if that had happened, and any of it had been done justice, I somehow doubt that George would have won the Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Screenplay, or that, that Hayden Christensen would have picked up uh, the award for Worst uh, Supporting Actor that very same night. <laughs> but, uh, as always... I'm just saying, 
and even as much of a stinker as it really was, we still couldn't fight the urge to fork over all the cash that we had to someone who really doesn't need it. Because all the money that we gave him over the years, and probably shouldn't, <laughs> oh boy. That along with the money that he made when selling uh, the franchise and eh, pretty much everything that Lucasfilms was and ever ever could have been. Uh, well, yeah, he he's set for life. Oh, and then y you got to realize <laughs> there's even one more prequel for us to have slept through. So, you know, <laughs> head on over to, to my Patreon page, you know. Uh, go to Patreon and just type in RPM Fickle Fanboy and, and, and support the show. But until we get to episode three, I guess for now, I'll be seeing you.